Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. And I'm Jacob Boston. Today on the Hudson, Ma- Hudson Mohawk Magazine, first, Blair Homer of Nyperg discusses the approval of updated district lines for the congressional districts. Then, Livonia talks with the owner of Heaven on Earth Beauty Salon, Carrie Ann A., as part of her series titled Reclaiming History. Later on, Sina Basila-Hickey speaks with Dan Falkenstrom of the Tech Center of Gravity to speak about of the Tech Center of Gravity to speak about maker spaces and the Small Business Support Program. After that, Willie Terry speaks with Brother X and Mal- with Brother X about Malcolm X's views on various topics surrounding activism. Finally, Marsha Lazarus talks with psych- psychiatrist Aliyah Saeed as part of the celebration for Women's History Month. But first, here are the headlines. Brandon Fellows of Niskayuna was sentenced to 42 months in prison for his involvement in the January 6th insurrection at the nation's capital. At SUNY New Paltz, more than 150 students and community residents protested, at, protested a speaking tour by Israeli soldiers supporting the ongoing attacks in Gaza. The record reports that a public forum on the proposed closing of the Burdette Birthing Center in Troy overflowed into the hallways, lasted twice as long as scheduled, and left activists, coalitions, and community members dissatisfied. St. Peter's says it plans to close the birthing center on June 30th, 2024. The proposed closing has drawn widespread public and political opposition. The proposal would have to be approved by the State Department of Health. Kevin Monahan, 66, has been sentenced to 26 and a third years for thir- third years to life for the killing of the 20-year-old woman that accidentally pulled into his driveway in rural Washington County. The Times Union reports that the city of Hudson's Universal Basic Income Pilot reported positive outcomes during its third year. The program, Hudson Up, gives 128 residents $500 a month with no strings attached. People in the program were also more likely to be employed after joining. Participants were physically healthier and had better familial familial relationships. And those are all our headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. New York State Legislature recently rammed through the approval of updated district lines for the congressional districts. Blair Horner of NYPIRC talked with Mark Dunley about the processes and provides an update on higher education and environmental issues in the state budget. We're talking with uh, Blair Horner of, of NYPIRC, the New York Public Interest Research Group, and I guess on the 28th of February, the uh, state legislature finally appears to have finalized the process on what the congressional district maps are going to look like. Um, so, so Blair, is this an important development or, you know, why should uh, good government people be concerned about this whole process? 
Well, uh, the it means that for the congressional lines, the lines are finally drawn, unless there's more litigation, which there always is. Um, and you know, for people to run for Congress, uh, they you know they need to know what district they live in, and so these were the final lines, uh, supposedly. Uh, for the uh, 29, I'm sorry, uh, 26 congressional districts in New York. Uh, and um, it matters a lot because last time in, 19, in 2022, when there were congressional elections, it was the fact that the Republicans did better than expected in New York that allowed the Republicans to seize control of the House of Representatives in Washington. And that not only has impacts in terms of public policy, because there are partisan and ideological differences between the parties when it comes to the domestic front, but it has an impact on world affairs. So, for example, it's the Republican opposition to uh, uh, providing aid to Ukraine, for example, that has basically allowed the Russians uh, to pick up uh, their uh, invasion and to get back on offense uh, in that war. Now, again, how somebody feels about that war is not necessarily the point right now, but it it does make a big difference uh, in terms of who controls the House and, what, and the result of public policy. So in terms of New York, New, control of the House may run again right through the state of New York uh, in 2024. Well, just a brief summary, you know, New York had amended the Constitution, set up this independent redistricting commission two years ago. They drew maps, legislature rejected it, adopted their own. The court said it had too much gerrymandering in favor of the Democrats. Um, court ordered its own maps. They gave the independent district and commission another shot at it. Um, the legislature made a few tweaks to what the independent commission came up with, but nothing, you know, particularly major. Some changes to help, I think, Bowman in one of his congressional races downstate a little bit, I think, for, for Ryan and one of the uh, Hudson Valley and maybe shape up a little bit uh, uh, on Long Island. So the, the Republicans say, hey, we're not happy, but we're not going to going to sue. Is this is this indication that this constitutional new process is going to work in the future? Or is it let's just get out of here and we'll worry about this, you know, eight years from now? Yeah, I mean, you know, every time you say independent redistricting commission, Mark, it makes my skin crawl because they're not independent. And that's part of the problem. Uh, they are appointees of the two major political parties, and just when the, just because the two major political parties agree doesn't necessarily mean it's in the best interest of the public. Uh, just point out to your listeners that there are more people that are not registered in any political party than there are Republicans in New York State, and yet they have no institutional say in this matter. But for the moment, you're right. The commission was created in 2014. I proposed it. We thought it would be a bipartisan mess. Sadly, we were right. Uh, the commission came up with lines this year uh, as a result of a court case, as you pointed out. Uh, they came up with lines that were advanced to the legislature on Monday, uh, that those maps were voted down, uh, and uh, then the legislature drew their own lines, largely tweaks off what the commission had come up with um, in uh, the day before. Uh, and, you know, it, you know, reading the tea leaves, I mean, who knows? You look at down, I look at these maps from 30,000 feet, but, you know, anytime you make any sort of changes in these districts, particularly when you have so many districts that were won by the incumbent with a very tiny majority, any sort of changes could make it could have a dramatic impact on who gets elected in 2024. So I think the process still stinks. Uh, and until you have a truly independent redistricting process, it's not going to get any better. But nevertheless, it is what it is. Uh, and it does show, though, that when the legislature wants to move something, 
They move it fast. Basically, within 24 hours, bills were passed to change the district lines and to limit the courts that anyone could go to to file litigation to challenge it. I would guess that's not exactly an exercise in good government or transparency. <laughs> well, you know, they, it was muscled through. So if you have the muscle, you use it. Uh, and that's what happened in this case. Well, you know, speaking of muscle, uh, I, I saw uh, this week that um, college students from from both CUNY and SUNY showed up at the uh, state capitol. I believe Nightberg helped, you know, bring them out there and uh, asking for more money than what the governor is proposing in the uh, the state budget. How how are our colleges, you know, faring at this point? I actually understand. Isn't the governor actually asking for some additional funding this year? Well, you know, it, it's always the, the the higher education budget is always one of these things that's a little tricky because it depends on the account. Uh, but we view it as, there, I mean, the governor proposes cuts, for example, to these programs called opportunity programs, which are designed to be on college campuses, both public and in, in the independent sector, to help provide services to needy students, the governor proposes across the board cuts. Uh, so there's more money in SUNY and CUNY in terms of their administrative operating expenses. That's true. Uh, but the state's 50-year-old tuition assistance program doesn't have any meaningful changes. Uh, the opportunity programs were cut. In so many ways, it's sort of a status quo, awful budget that you've seen over the recent past. We think it's a huge mistake. This is one investment where you the product is something that everyone wants you know, more skilled workers, more civically minded uh, individuals. Uh, and every time you put money into uh, into higher education, you get five to eight dollars back in economic activity. And so given how much the state wastes on so-called economic development programs, and we think it'd be much more sense to pump it into colleges. Now, in this area, in the Capital District, the College of St. Rose is closing. You know, I don't know all the details of why. Uh, but it's like a neutron bomb is going to hit the middle of uh, the city of Albany. 90 properties this College of St. Rose owns. And to some extent, uh, the, the failure of the College of St. Rose is a result of public policy, the way that the state has cut financial aid, particularly for the independent sector. So yesterday was a big lobby day for hundreds of uh, college students, both in CUNY, SUNY, but also in the independent sectors, lobbying for improved tuition assistance, improved opportunity programs, and more funding to keep colleges afloat, because we think that is a good economic development investment. Now, isn't part of the, the problem, especially, you know, say five years out, is that um, basically fewer and fewer college-age students are going to be coming down the, the pike, and that's going to make it more difficult, you know, for existing programs to continue to you know, supply the same level of, of, of teaching and, and programs to students. Does the governor sort of address that long-term issue at all? Well, the, 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 uh, in the public sector, the state is doing things. So, for example, you don't have to pay fees to apply. I mean, they don't, they're doing a lot of things to make it easier for students to apply to go to college. And while it is true that the demographic trend for the 18 to 24-year-olds is you know, shrinking in terms of that trend. Um, uh, you know, the majority of 18 to 24-year-olds don't go to college or don't get a college degree. Uh, and so we think, well, you know, the question then is why? I mean, people don't have to go to college, of course, uh, but uh, if they can't go because they don't think they can afford it, 
Uh, if they don't think they can go because they don't get the services that they need because their family's struggling or they're on their own, uh, those are programs the state should be investing money in because it's a you know long-term investment in the state's uh, future, and it's a short-term investment in the local economies uh, that businesses and uh, college employees all rely on, uh, and they pay taxes and spend money. Uh, so those these are programs where the state should be pumping money in, not program other economic development programs where you get pennies back on the dollar. So we only got about a, uh, a, a minute left. Uh, allegedly, we're going to have a state budget in about a month. What are some of the key things that NYPIRG wants to see in that budget in 45 well, I mean, seconds? The, the, big ticket I, the big ticket items are on the environmental side. Uh, the state's facing rising, mushrooming climate damages costs and climate damages. Who should pay right now? The governor wants to make the taxpayers pay. We think that the oil companies who are primarily responsible for this mess should have to kick in at least something. We're, we're pushing for legislation for $3 billion a year for each of the next 25 years. And higher education, as we just described. Those are two big areas uh, that we're hoping to see uh, improvements uh, in the ultimate and final state budget, which you're right, is supposed to be done by the end of next month. Fingers crossed. Blair Horner, Executive Director of NYPIRG, NYPIRG.org. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. That was Mark Dunley talking with Blair Horner about the updated lines for the congressional districts in New York. We'd like to use this time to remind you that local elections are coming up soon and we will be providing coverage. Next, as part of the her Reclaiming History series, Livonia, Livonia Mallory talks with Carrie Ann A., a Jamaican-born business owner who runs a beauty salon called Heaven on Earth. They talk about the origins of the salon, the experience she hopes to give her clients, and what she teaches her clients about why hair care is important. The sound you're hearing is the sound of water. What a soothing way to start an interview at Heaven on Earth Salon. Once again, welcome to another segment of Reclaiming History with Lavonia Mallory. So first, why don't you tell my listeners your name, the name of your business, and what makes your business different or special? So my name is Carrie Ann, and um, the name of my business is Heaven on Earth Beauty Salon. Okay. And what makes Heaven on Earth Beauty Salon unique or different than other salons is I really strive to make sure, we really strive to make sure that our customers leave out feeling different than the way that they come in. So what we strive to accomplish when we're dealing with our customers is to make sure that they not only feel great about their hair, but they feel uplifted and just feeling like they can conquer the world once they leave. We do come in contact with people from all different backgrounds. And as we know, there's just so much going on. And each time um, someone sits in my chair, it's an opportunity for me to encourage them, to uplift them. You know, it's one thing feeling great on the outside, but when the inside matches the outside, then we have a really great thing. So you must have a very loyal group of, you know, clientele that just, you like, you're the only person that touches their hair. Yes. Yeah, so actually, 
Heaven on Earth was birthed in 2004 and until this and up till this day here in uh, 2024 I still do have customers that I service um, that I've been servicing since I've been in business and before I opened my salon so customers that I've been servicing for 20 years 18 years 15 women are very particular and what they love about Heaven on Earth, myself, is the consistency. They can rely on me. I've even had some customers move away, and they've been gone for five or six years, and they call the number, and we're still here. I still have the same phone number. They love the fact that they can rely on our services, um, on the location, on the stylist. And what's your specialty like? So what kind of hairstyle do you really think that when people think about heaven on earth, they think, yeah, that's where I can go to get that sort of hairstyle done? Overall, I'm going to say that our foundation is hair care. We want to make sure that the customer's hair is healthy overall. So when we talk about hair care, we're talking about the integrity of the customer's hair, whether they're going to get a relaxer. We still do relaxers. We provide updo styles, uh, short haircuts, locks, natural styles as well, um, whether it be silk presses where we're straightening out the natural hair or we're just simply working with uh, the customer's natural curls. So um, overall, we service um, a number of different clientele and as far as like what they're looking for the type of hair services that they're looking for but my specialty I'm gonna say is hair care I do offer a number of styles like I um, just said relaxers uh, I work with natural hair I work with locks uh, braiding but my specialty is taking care of the hair overall um, no matter what service the customer is getting done, if they're getting a weave done or if they're getting a wig installed, I really like to focus on the customer's hair and I educate them on their hair and I let them know why hair care is important. And and if you have a customer that comes in and she's just starting with you, what is the one thing you tell her she needs to do to like maintain? You said the integrity of the hair. That's the first time I've heard that term. What does that really mean? Right, so their hair needs, for the most part, protein. The hair needs moisture. So say if I have someone coming in and they're getting a relaxer service. After the relaxer service, because the process of the relaxer is straightening the hair out, it breaks down the disulfide bonds, pulls the natural protein out. And that's why a lot of women do get breakage when they um, get the chemical services because the hair is not being balanced back out, putting the protein back in. Um, and the reason why the protein needs to go back in is to make sure that the hair has elasticity so it doesn't break when you put the stress on it from brushing or combing. And say if someone uh, comes in and their hair is natural, no chemicals at all, the same thing. We want to put the protein back in here. We want to moisturize the hair. We want to make sure that when it comes down to, like I said, the integrity of the hair, when it's being pulled on uh, by braids or brushed or um, being combed, whatever it is um, that the customer is trying to accomplish, you want to make sure that the hair is strong enough to be able to withstand the styles. Mm -hmm. So for my listeners, tell, tell them your location, your, the days that you're open, mm -hmm. and if they wanted to come in and get their hair serviced, how could they reach you? 
Okay, so we are located at 330 Central Avenue in Albany, New York. Um, if you are looking to come in to get a service done, we definitely recommend that you call us and make an appointment. We do take walk-ins, but we strongly encourage that you call us and make an appointment because you really want to make sure that we're giving you an allotted time you know, to get your service done and you know, we can have that scheduled. And the way that you do that is by calling 518-432-4302. For those of you who like to set your appointments on your own, you can go to our uh, website, which is www.heavenonearthbeautysalon.com and click book now. It'll take you to the Vagaro site. You set up a profile and you click the day and time and the stylist that you would like to see. And then our, and on our end, We'll see it and we'll communicate with you through the booking site. And do you take walk-ins? We do take walk-ins, um, but we ask that if you do walk-in that, um, you know, you do exercise some patience and it's, you know, just like going to the doctor's office. So the customers that have the appointments, we definitely want to make sure that we're taking care of them. They've taken the time out to book that appointment and then we would pretty much be working you in. But even if you are walking, we don't just leave you sitting. We want to make sure that everyone is happy. So we would, you know, still make sure we prioritize you as a customer. And what are your hours of operation? Um, so we are open Tuesday through Saturday. Um, and we uh, open our doors at 9.45 a.m. Tuesday through Friday and on Saturdays, 9 a.m. And we do take our last appointment at about 4 o'clock so that um, we can close at about 6.37 all right, well, thank you so much for agreeing to be on another segment of Reclaiming History with Livonia Mallory. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. That was Livonia Mallory's latest story on for Reclaiming History. I'd like to say that today I got my hair cut, and if there was ever a day I wish we had live video to go along with this show, it is today. How does it feel just coming freshly from the salon? Uh. I mean, everyone's more confident when you get like a haircut or a manicure, pedicure. Just you feel fresher and, you know, more if confident. If it's a good cut. Yeah. That's, I cannot stress how important that is. <laughs> and that hair salon is Heaven on Earth. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazil Hickey. And I'm Jacob Austin. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. And we're also now playing on WCAALP 107.3 in Albany from the Grand Street Community Arts. And if you like what you hear, you can support this program by sharing our content. You can find all those stories. Our search engine is really great. And more at mediasanctuary.org. You may have passed Tech Valley Center of Gravity in downtown Choi. But do you know what they're actually about? Sina Bazili Hickey gets the scoop about what they do in their small business support program. Tech Valley Center of Gravity is a makerspace, prototyping center, manufacturing incubator, STEAM education center, and creative community, and Dan Falkenstrom, operations director at Tech Valley Center of Gravity, joins me now. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Yeah, thank you. 
So what is the center? Beyond those little buzzwords that I just gave, like what is it actually? Can you describe also just like the smell, like the the feeling of being in that space? Yeah, yeah. So really a, a makerspace is a at its core, a community workshop. So we're a, a space where anyone can come access our tools, equipment, workspace, and also just the creative community that that hangs out there. So we're, we're at the corner of 3rd and Broadway in downtown Troy. The first floor has these giant floor-to-ceiling windows, so it's a very light-filled space. And it's a space filled with a lot of activity. So there's always people... Uh, you know, cutting, drilling, building, uh, using our laser cutters, 3D printers. Uh, so someone walking by, looking through the windows, you know, they just might see a couple people on computers because that's what's right there in front of the windows. But in our basement is where we have our woodworking room, our welding, our machining. So people cutting metal, um, putting things together. Uh, there's really just so much going on there. It's a very just an active workshop space. So woodworking, welding, so many other things do need training. Is that a part of the space or does someone need to have a certain amount of expertise before using these equipment? Yeah, education is a, it's a big part of what a makerspace is. Uh, the whole community is sharing their skills. So anyone coming into the space for the first time, uh, if you already have experience using tools, you just have to go through a safety orientation, go over all of our safety rules and procedures. Then you're allowed to use whatever equipment that you already know how to use. And if there's anything you don't know how to use, we can do one-on-one classes uh, and we'll do project-based classes, or you can just ask other people that are around, hey, haven't used a table saw in a while. Can you give me a refresher? And someone is generally very open to giving 10, 20 minutes of their time to show someone else how to do something. So the people who are a part of this space, is it somebody who has like a home DIY project that they want to do or are they running a business on the side? What are the kind of scope of people who are involved here? Yeah, the, the common thread is anyone who is making something physical and that, that spans a wide range of things. So we have people who are doing home renovation projects. We have tech startups working on new hardware products and they have to do prototyping or short run manufacturing We have artists working in all sorts of mediums. We're seeing a lot more uh, taking advantage of digital fabrication tools, so 3D printing or uh, computer-controlled machining uh, and blending that with more traditional art forms. Uh, So it's a pretty wide range. We also have a lot of game developers, so people doing video game development and everything that surrounds that. Uh, That's a a form of making and it's a form of creation and it definitely has a place at, at the COG. You mentioned the availability of classes to get trainings and to get new expertise. What are the hours of classes that typically occur? So our classes are, they're generally pretty short. Uh, mm-hmm. So um, building access is, is 24-7. Anyone can, you know, people can come in at any time, uh, depending. And there's a couple different membership levels that provide different amount of access. For classes, uh, we'll generally do anything as short as 30 minutes, one hour, if it's a just a quick skill, learning how to use one particular tool. But we'll do anything up to four-hour classes, eight-hour classes. And then we're working on some things that'll hopefully be a little bit more in-depth, so some multi-week sessions. Uh, so it really spans the, spans the wide range. So I'm thinking of like someone who works to a nine to five, how available are those classes to them? So I know me, I'm often working at radio. A lot of things happen at 6 p.m., so um, is there also weekend classes that take place or is it just a, a real variety of classes that's best to 
check yeah, out the website. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're very flexible. Uh, so you can definitely check our website and see when our pre-scheduled classes are. But we'll also do custom things. So if we're doing a one-on-one class, we can schedule that at any time. Whenever the instructor is free, whenever the student is free, they just kind of work together and figure out a time. That happens on nights. It happens on weekends. happens at 6 in the morning on a weekday. Uh, pretty much whatever, whatever they can make happen. And you have a program, the Small Business Support Program. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so this is a it's a grant-funded program through the Troy Now Initiative. And what we've noticed over the years, uh, our one of the biggest barriers of entry to the makerspace is the cost. We kept it as low as we possibly can. Now, it's actually a lot cheaper than a lot of co-working spaces uh, that are out there. And but membership dues still only cover a fraction of what it costs to operate the makerspace. Uh, and yet still, even with that, we know that barrier to entry, that financial barrier to entry is pretty large, especially to someone starting a business that already has a lot of money they're going to have to put into their, their new venture. So what we were able to do is take some of this grant funding and put it towards covering the cost of membership dues and also the cost of renting space within our building for someone to start a business. So we wanted to reduce that barrier to entry. We wanted to bring new businesses to Troy. And that's what this whole program is is centered around. So when you're talking about businesses, is it creating the furniture for like a boutique or is it also thinking more about businesses that are based on making custom orders for clients or both? Yeah, it's anything that is creating a physical product. So we have a, there's a mix of things. Uh, We have one tech startup that is doing 3D printed, uh, robotic 3D printed ceramic tiles for the architecture industry. Uh, We have an artist that does custom art pieces uh, for uh, just on a a commission basis. Uh, We have someone that does custom furniture for boutiques, high-end hotels, um, and see any yeah, pretty much any business making a physical product would uh, apply for that that small business program. Okay, so when you talk about a business, it's kind of like a co-working space for people work based on computers, except this is a co-working space for businesses that are using the creative handmade uh, elements. It, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but it's also I want to emphasize that it's not it's not just for businesses. That's one of the great things about our space. We have 250 members, and that spans all walks of life. Uh, one of the, you know, kind of one of the things that we've seen is people who are just individual hobbyists. They look at our space and think, "Oh, that that place is just for businesses." And then someone working a startup sees our space and goes, "Oh, that's just for hobbyists or individuals. That's not for me." But uh, both of those groups have a place at the center of gravity. Uh, so we really we cover yeah, anyone making anything physical. So what are some of the eligibility criteria for somebody to get the small business support? The primary things are you have to be a business, you have to be working on a physical product, and you have to be located in the city of Troy. And that also includes uh, if you are relocating to our address and using our our address, our facility as your primary place of business, that counts as well. And what are some other ways that you want to speak to small businesses and the ways that they can get support through this membership and through participating with the Tech Valley Center of Gravity? 
So the, the capital region as a whole has this, this wide network of support for, for businesses, for startups. And it can be, it's, it's very intimidating. Uh, and there's, there's so many different organizations out there, uh, things run by UAlbany, RPI, Small Business Development Center. Uh, it's, it can be, yeah, it's very, it can be pretty complicated. But what we're able to do is make those connections to businesses coming into our community like ours. They tell us what they're working on, what their stumbling bar- blocks are, and we can reach out to these organizations or make those connections to get businesses the support they need to be successful. Makerspaces seem like a, the concept seems very based in like the way that we used to work as communities where we shared spaces and we become very individualistic. This seems as we're in the time of climate crisis, a very sustainable also way to think about working and then also getting past our screens and creating that kind of community. Do you see this as like, a bit of climate activism or like do you see it in in that way as like a solution to our now problems a little bit yeah uh, part of the original impetus for starting the space uh, not only was it to help keep some of our tech grads in the region but a whole bunch of people saw that hey you know we have all of these technically minded makers they all have individually their own shops with all this great equipment what if we combine that all into a single resource that everyone can access? And we've also seen people who, you know, they maybe lived in a single family home, they had a garage filled with equipment, and they're downsizing, they're moving to an apartment, they're moving to more of this kind of downtown walkable environment. And instead of having their own shop with their own massive amounts of equipment, just getting access to ours that they can use anytime they want. So this whole idea of reducing the amount of equipment and resources that are duplicated all over the place and just centralizing it into one spot that's accessible for anyone. Uh, it really is a big part of, of makerspaces and then also being that community space where people can come, connect, share ideas, and continue to grow. Dan Falkenstrom, it's been great to speak with you about Tech Valley Center of Gravity, this makerspace, and all that it entails. What's the best way to find more information about the center. We have our website, tvcog.net. We also have an open house social night every Tuesday night from 630 to 9. So the best way to understand what the COG is, is to come by and visit. So any Tuesday evening, come say hi. All right. Thanks so much for joining me. Would you like to leave our listeners with anything? So we're, we're fond of saying everyone is a maker. Uh, so if you find yourself working on anything, doing anything, creating anything, there is most likely a place for you at the center of gravity. So don't be shy. Come on in, talk to some people, and uh, see what we're all about. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. The first time that I was in this makerspace, I was photographing Sean Desiree as they were working in the wood studio. And it was really cool to see in the middle of Troy, in the basement of this building, this wonderful woodworking studio and then, as mentioned, all these other stations. It, it's a pretty unique kind of space. And um, we have been talking about having them, the Tech Valley Center for Gravity table at uh, Freedom Square. So looking forward to future collaborations. On February 21st, 1965, Malcolm X was assassinated while speaking at the, while speaking at the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem at the age of 39. On Tuesday, February 21st, 2024, 
Willie Terry spoke to Brother X of Albany about Malcolm's views on foreign affairs, foreign affairs, electoral politics, and assassination. This is part three of Willie's discussion with Brother X. Uh, folks, as you mentioned uh, about his paper. So, when you talk about uh, import-export, right, all that's done in the government offices, right? Who's the distributor? Who's the deliverer? Who assigns the jobs? Who gets this and who gets that? And Malcolm saw how that works. He saw different ethnic groups in different positions of power within a city and an ordinance. And he went back to our people and he gave them an astute political breakdown on how these things work and how you should vote and who you should put in. Everybody that you should put in, you should know. Right? When we had our small towns, right, the uh the school master, the headmaster, right? The ed- the educator, the president, you know, the principal. We knew they lived right down the street. They lived across the street. They lived across town. They were married to us. We were connected to them. As opposed to nowadays and during that time, individuals whom we never seen or met before who lived 20 to 30 miles away and no connection with us down there in these power positions. And they're bringing their own people in where their own people don't have a connection with our people. You see, you treat you treat a brethren or a cousin that you know in a power position differently than you with somebody else because you know that person doesn't care about you. You see, so the duality of everything comes down to politics, the street sign, the stop sign, all these different things, how money is distributed, wages, uh, the type of housing that was there, all this stuff, you know, was political, and he focused his energies on that. Again, I, I mentioned this before in a previous uh, interview. Before, before he died, he was supposed to go to China, speak at a, a big convention there, revolutionaries. Then after that, he was going to come in and build up his organization, his local organization, the OAAU, right? He was going to go door to door and build it up and get membership and focus on politics there in New York City. So they knew this. The, the lead class knew this. The, those federal agents knew this. They couldn't allow him to do that because imagine the FaceTime that they were giving Malcolm X during that time, now he's knocking on your door asking you to be a part of his organization. Of course you're going to join. Now he can get his... They didn't want, a, they didn't want another political Marcus Garvey UNIA, right? That during his time, during the height of the UNIA, it, they had about 40% of blacks part of that organization. About 2 million, I believe. And we were only like 4 or 5 million counted. So you got half the blacks in the country part of the UNIA. And Marcus Garvey was making power moves to improve the lives of our people. So Malcolm's idea and his agenda in terms of politics was going to be, hey, if we, we're going to choose our candidate and then we're going to vote for him, we're going to organize this whole thing and where we're at, we're going to control, you see. And he had the soldiers, if it came to that. He had the soldiers, the mafia ran certain things, they had Bubba Johnson. So if it came to that, then he certainly was ready for it, but yeah. unfortunately, he never got the opportunity to right. expound on it. And you know, uh, I guess when I talk, talk about electoral politics and Malcolm X, I think one of the, his uh, greatest speeches was the ballot or the bullet, right. which he emphasized uh, electoral politics. And one other thing he talked about, that the Democratic and Republican Party was two wings of the same bird. Do you think that still applies today? Well, yes. In, in the ballot and the bullet speech, he talked about how the different candidates knew each other. That they had gone to school, they had dealings with one another, that they would meet with one another. So he was 
He was like, hey, we being jabbed. When he said, you being bamboozled, hoodwinked, you know? This is this, this game that you feel like you're choosing somebody that's for you or they're not for you. When he talked about Kennedy, he said, he put you, you put him first and he put you last. You know, when he dealt with all the things he wanted to do with, then he gets to you. And he wasn't in the office very long, as we know, unfortunately, he was assassinated. But every president that was uh, president and hold, held office during the time that Malcolm was alive, he was highly critical of him. And he talked about uh, the Negroes, as we were called then, voting for these entities, getting them in office, and then the guy not even mentioning your name while he was in office. You know? So, um, um, let me, let, me, let me go back to the, the question you asked. Ask that question again, brother. I'm sorry. No, I was saying he was asking you, uh, is the uh, situation that exists today the same when he said that the Democrat and Republican Party was two wings yeah. of the same bird? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, yeah, I, I was answering the question. So, yes. Mm -hmm. So, these individuals know each other. You, you see Trump and Biden. I'm sure nowadays, remember I mentioned the camera and that old videos and pictures and stuff come out, I'm sure you might have seen these, these gentlemen together hanging out, partying, whatever, and it's, it's a game. It, it, it's a movie. It's, uh, it's a Broadway show, right? It's a, hey, we, these are your two candidates. They've been dominating for so long. No other offices or no other uh, uh, political groups can come to power, have the resources enough to challenge the Democrat or the Republican Party. People are trying to vote green. Right, and, and put emphasis and, and shed light on them, uh, independent as well. Uh, but all these the Democrat and Republic, they're, they're fused with money. So you always follow the money. When you look at the money behind them, you have to match that to really get an audience with the, uh, the individuals that have been dominating and the group that has been dominating for so long. So yes, it's still a game amongst uh, our people now are becoming more and more aware of the messages that have left and Dr. King and Minister Malcolm. Malcolm talked about reparations, and that's a huge movement, once again, uh, that content creators now on YouTube, commentators, political commentary, has increased significantly since uh, the soapbox days of, of Minister Malcolm and, and others. And so they were able to reach a large audience almost instantly, and we've finally been operating on a code. And it's going to take a, a long time but I think we're in the right direction when we talk about the uh, reparations movement and that no matter what now we're having a political conscience where we're saying we don't care who is going for office. You let us know what your thoughts are on reparations, repairing the black American uh, economically and otherwise in America, right? Cutting the check as the language is called, right? And if you are serious about this and if you have a plan of action, to uh, disseminate resources to the Aboriginal uh, free people here, then now we will look at you seriously as a candidate for president, but only if you can guarantee us some things, you have to show us something. And so our people finally have been, you know, on that code, and I think Malcolm uh, in the other world is smiling because it's in the direction that would harm the state in their eyes anyway. I think we can, blacks have showed historically, we have, we have repaired and helped and assisted every ethnic group has ever existed. If they need help, we come helping. Without any guarantee of reciprocity, right? We'll come and do it and then leave and hope that you will improve your lives based on the information and knowledge that we've given you historically. That's how we historically move. If you give black people reparations, we can heal this country in 24 hours. But the state is always 
cut his nose off, spite his face. Mm -hmm. And so we're still fighting the same fight. Right. Well, on that, those thoughts, uh, I want to end because I want to say I want to thank you for conduct this interview, but I do want to say that reparation is another topic that I think we I want to discuss with you, and I think we'll set up something to talk about that, because that's it's a very important topic. I know that uh, on this day, February the 21st, Malcolm was assass assassinated. Who killed Malcolm? That's another discussion. A lot of people say, and we think that it was the government. That's a debate that has to be brought up and discussed. So any last-minute things you want to say uh, in reference to this date, especially to the young people? Uh, simply this, uh, young people should definitely do their research on Malcolm X. Uh, uh, very um, ardent and um, creative people have packaged Malcolm X in a way that they can be consumed by the younger group mm -hmm. in bits and pieces and different animations on uh, YouTube and Certainly you can do that. In the past, it had to be books and really sitting down and reading a book of three or 400 pages. I still would like for our young folks to, to read most, uh, most definitely. But to get to that point, um, to use your social media apps to look up Malcolm X and the different speeches and things that he, he's had, different videos people have created. And then from there, uh, that would light the fire or put the seeds in your mind to go and read the books and then watch the documentaries and so on and so forth. And then... Uh, I think that will lead you to uh, uh, astute uh, political utilization of, of your skills and your knowledge and information that you, you will be given, and then you will start to act and organize. Uh, so that, that would be my message to young folks. All right. And uh, thank you again. That's uh, Brother X. And I want to say uh, long live the views and thoughts of Malcolm X. Thank you, Brother X. That was the third part of this series. Uh, Willie Terry speaking with Brother X. They have speak in previous years on various topics, reoccurring figure on our show. Uh, Willie Terry looks a lot at our um, his, uh, historical figures, and you can hear more stories by Willie Terry on um, history and labor movements at mediasanctuary.org. Today is the first day of March, which means a couple of great things. First, the dreaded season of winter is almost hey, over. I'm a winter fan. You like you like being cold. I I don't like being cold. <laughs> Go ahead, continue. <laughs> but more importantly, it means it's Women's History Month. To commemorate the celebration, Marsha Lazarus talked with Aliyah Saeed about her journey of becoming a psychiatrist and the gratification that she finds working with people in prison. March is Women's History Month, commemorating and encouraging the study, observance, and celebration of the vital role of women in history and today. This is Marcia Lazarus for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm sitting here with Alia Saeed, Alia is a psychiatrist who works with people in prison. Thank you for so, inviting me. It's quite a pleasure. Alia, when I first heard you present at the Women's Empowerment Conference in Albany, we were two years into Trump's presidency. And at the time, there was a lot of coming together and organizing within the women's community. But since October 7th, our community is facing so much division, 
so much polarization. You came to mind, Alia, as I remember so vividly the empathy that you expressed when you talked about your work, in particular in the prisons. So to start, becoming a psychiatrist, I understand, is not an easy feat. There's quite a number of years of schooling to go through. I did not grow up in America. The medical school itself for me was five years. And that is common in Europe and par other parts of the world. And once I got done with medical school, I had to go through residency, which in my case ended up being five years because I did four years of psychiatry residency and a year of fellowship in public psychiatry. Wow. Very impressive. And I wonder, I'm, I'm so curious, what motivated you to follow this path? So, um, I think it's it's very tough, especially when you're young, to decide what you want to do with the rest of your life because you don't quite know yourself very well. I did not know myself very well. So what ended up happening for me was I was actually, when I was doing my psychiatry rotation as a medical student, I noticed at the, our school day, that usually ended at five o'clock. And I found myself wanting to stay back to continue working. And I didn't want to go home at five o'clock. And I saw that as a cue for me to say, this is what's right for me. When you spoke at the women's conference about your work with women and men in prison, your empathy was, I'd say, almost opposite to the popular view. You know, people who are incarcerated are generally seen you know, as the bad guys, they deserve to be locked up. And and that's it. That's the whole story. Do you have thoughts on where your ability to empathize, to be compassionate, to look beyond labels, where this came from? I personally think most humans are like that. We're mostly like that when we're playing in playgrounds, wherever we are as children. Um, I've seen that with my own children. Uh, if somebody gets hurt, they get upset, even if they are not themselves hurt. And uh, and I and I think all of us have felt it when we see something that is painful. I think we all feel that pain. So I th I do think that that is our default to be to be empathic to the fellow human being. Um, I do think though that sometimes, um, and I, I would say that's the default for most of us. But I do think that sometimes our society teaches us to be different. To Our society can sometimes force us into our little bubbles. And I think what those bubbles do is it makes us insensitive sometimes to the suffering of the other. And all of us, I think, have followed a path to get where we are. I think the path in involves good stuff, but also not so good stuff. Um, and I can say that within the prison system, it would it is rare to find somebody who has not had bad things happen to them, starting sometimes at a very young age. And, you know, there's this, you know, not to be uh, flip about it, but, you know, there's a saying that hurt people hurt. A lot of these people in 
starting from childhood through generational poverty, through so many other ways that people can find themselves, especially as children, when you have such little power over what you can do, find themselves in a situation where you could not find a different outcome than sometimes what these children who grow up to be, in my case, men, because I, I don't see any women, but I would imagine men, women, and others, uh, I think all of them have had circumstances that I think I, you and I probably would not be very different either if we had those circumstances. It sounds like you're very thoughtful. And maybe what draws you to that work in general, that interest and wanting to understand people more deeply? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, when I was deciding to go into mental health after medicine, one of the things that I you know, mentioned to you was not wanting to go home. Another thing was I did a year's rotating uh, internship. Uh, where I did a little bit of medicine, a little bit of different fields of medicine, so that I could be sure about where I wanted to go. And I remember that there was a certain specialty where I was rotating through. And I found myself repeating myself. It was very similar. It was it was almost like back then, I remember saying that I could create uh, a rubber stamp, but I could go the rubber stamp with most people, because there's not that much freedom that I felt in that specialty in trying to connect with the person as an individual. You know, you mainly connected with their disease, not with who they are. Um, and I think to the fact that I can do that in mental health, where I can connect with the individual, uh, to me, it's a great privilege that I get to work in a way that allows me not to become a rubber stamp. Beautiful. So, Alia, you've been in this field for almost 27 years. What have you found to be most gratifying? One of my most gratifying moments have been on multiple occasions. When you so see somebody in the prison who has really been falling through the cracks, they went through the criminal system because they did something and then you see them and you realize, well, let me talk to him a little more and a little more. And then you find out that a lot of what they were manifesting in terms of their behavior was results of some serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia and psychosis that never got picked up because on the outside of the prison, people were just trying to avoid them because of their actions. Inside of the prison, um, sometimes, or jail, uh, sometimes the thought is just to see how they can be prevented from being a disciplinary problem. But then you actually talk to the person and you realize, wow, this person has schizophrenia. And what if you were to treat schizophrenia? And, and this may be something, you know, I'm going on the side a little bit, but something that a lot of people are aware of, I'm sure you are too, that what has happened in the United States is that uh, instead of putting people in hospitals, uh, especially people who are impoverished and don't have a lot of influential family members, we have started putting them in prison sometimes. 
And, and you know, a good chunk of the people I see don't have schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is a rare illness. What I mainly see, a lot of the actions that, you know, would be unacceptable to the society, I a lot of it I see as coming from people who have been significantly traumatized. Sometimes the trauma started early on in their life, and it continues as they fall through crack after crack after crack. Uh, and as we all know, prisons are definitely not a very supportive environment for them either. So um, I think that has been sometimes gratifying to be able to just validate the person's trauma and to say, wow, uh, no, you're not really just a bad kid, which is what they were told early on. And you know, I have to give a shout out to so many of the therapists I work with. Some of them are, you know, the most empathic creatures you'll ever meet. In 2018, Aaliyah, you were awarded the New York Civil Liberty Union's Carol S. Knox Award. Yes. What did this award mean to you? The award uh, itself, obviously, awards are just, you know, a wooden or glass piece. Uh, what meant a lot to me were the people that were in the room when I was recognized. Uh, people who I really admire and respect, they were in the room, they were there to support me, and that meant a lot to me. Um, so I think that was the biggest thing for me, is to be able to be seen as somebody who was helpful to the world by the people who were there. That was Marsha Lazarus celebrating Women's History Month with an interview with Aliyah Saeed, whose job is a psychiatrist. And that is our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Jacob Bust, and our engineer is also Sina Bazilahiki. We thank all of our volunteers who made today's episode possible. This takes a team effort. Shouts to Mark Dunley, Livonia Mallory, Willie Terry, Marsha Lazarus, and in studio, Sina Bazilahiki, and yours truly, Jacob Boston. <laughs> This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community, for the community, and it's supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile. <laughs>